year also. It's great to see so many of us back that have been traveling. Before we look into God's Word, I want to pray for our congregation and <clears throat> want to lift up Pastor Tory Linden. Uh, many of us met him during the, the Salem uh, Heritage uh, Weeks that we had. And uh, Pastor Tory was uh, born in Norway and uh, as an infant moved to the United States and I think around age 40 um, since that God was calling him into ministry went to Moody and uh, left there and came here to Salem and served for seven years and um, it was during this time I believe that the Salem uh, Spanish church was started as well as the school and um, he had a close connection with team mission and so we want to remember to pray for his his uh, widow, um, Flo, and three daughters and their children and grandchildren as they go through this time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge, God, that there are times like this, Lord, that when we lose loved ones, Lord, that thank God, we so desperately need you. We need your strength and grace and comfort. We ask, Father, that you'd be with, with Pastor Tory's family, Lord, with Flo and with the daughters and, and children, grandchildren. Ask, God, that you might encourage them, comfort them, Father, that they might in this time find peace and rest and you. Father, we do look to this year and just thank you, God, for, for all that lies before us. We look at a new year before us. We pray, Father, that we might live in such a way, Lord, that you would bless us, Father, that we might seek your face in all that we say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in December of 2011, a little over a year ago, the elders of Good News Bible Church headed off to a retreat to pray for the church and to begin working toward our vision statement. I think we came back after a weekend and worked a morning or so here. And, it, and every Sunday is on the back of your bulletin. Sometimes we don't pay a lot of attention to what's on our bulletin. But I want you, if you have the bulletin with you, if you'll look at it with me and let's read it. Uh, this vision statement is how we as elders see us carrying out that mission that we have. Do you remember that knowing God, walking with others and serving? And this, this all comes together. How do we do that in the next few years? Our vision statement is, this year and in the years to come, we, the members of Good News Bible Church, seek to live a life of holiness in the context of community, to reach those around us through both intentional evangelism and practical discipleship, lovingly encouraging those in need and actively seeking God's direction for ministry through our facilities. And today, we'll be looking at number one, walking in holiness in community. 
walking in holiness and community. <clears throat> As read earlier, our text is from First Peter, and I want to just reread verses 13 through 15. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. And this here, this be holy because I am holy, could come from many passages in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 11.44 says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. But if you look at living a life of holiness in the context of community, several questions may come up in our minds. First one is, what is holiness? Does that mean that we're perfect? Short answer, no. Why should I care? In other words, what should motivate you and me to be holy? And third, I'm aware that I'm a sinner. How do I change? How does God change me? And fourth, what does living in community mean? Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Whole and the Holiness, from which I stole the title for the sermon today, says this, we don't even seem to care much about holiness or don't understand it. Maybe it seems legalistic. Maybe the emphasis on self-effort seems unspiritual. Maybe we've been trying really hard to be holy and it just isn't working. Whatever the case, the problem is clear. Too few Christians look like Christ Far too many don't seem to be concerned about that. Nancy Lee DeMoss, in her book, Holiness, seems to agree. She says, holiness isn't an easy sell. There isn't, it is not one of the top ten topics that people look for in a Christian bookstore. There are no hit songs about holiness. The word holy is seen over 600 times in the Old and New Testament. If you add in words like sanctify and sanctification and holiness, over 700 times. If we think about the nation of Israel, they were called to be a holy nation. Their whole system of worship was centered around being holy. They were to be a holy people. The priests wore holy clothes. The land of Canaan was to be the holy land. They used holy utensils and holy priests carried out the worship. They celebrated holy days and lived by the holy law. So, what does holy mean? What does holy mean? Well, it's very basic. Holiness means separation. It can be and is a spatial term. When someone or something is holy, it's set apart. It's set apart. It's to be distinct. It's to be different. And it's the things I've mentioned there about Israel. They're not to be used for anything 
for common type use or ordinary uses. They were holy. In Leviticus 20, talking to the nation of Israel, God says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. We see there God setting aside a people, making them holy. A.W. Tozer says holiness is moral wholeness, a positive quality which includes kindness and mercy and purity and moral blamelessness and godliness. Nancy Lee DeMoss says that in the sense of being pure and clean, to be holy is to reflect the moral character of God. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, keep yourself pure. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn from wickedness. Romans 12.9 says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We need to remember that to be holy, that being holy as a requirement is not just for few spiritual giants. Moms, it's for you. Moms maybe who are battling uselessness, a sense of uselessness or discouragement. Tempted sometimes maybe to escape into self-pity or to novels or into arms of an attentive man. Students. You're bombarded with so much in the classroom and on campus. Lonely widows, divorcees and singles struggling to stay sexually abstinent and pure. It's for husbands and wives who struggle with bitterness. It's for men who are tempted to cheat on our business expenses or our wives. Holiness is for all who claim the name of Jesus Christ. Holiness is cultivated in the context of relationship with God through Christ. And it's his love, his love, that causes us to reject the lesser loves and those fleeting delights that tempt us in life. Well, what's going to motivate you and what's going to motivate me to seek to live a holy life? What will cause you and me to turn off the TV when we see that crude or suggestive program coming on? What's going to cause us to put down that magazine which glorifies sensuality or to resist the Internet with pornography just a click away or to admit that you've sinned and ask for forgiveness? To say no to every hint of sexual immorality. Holiness involves following a standard, but it's not that cold, dutiful type thing. It should come from a love relationship with Jesus Christ. It isn't something that we strive to attain uh, in the sense of sheer grit 
or determination or willpower is motivated, again, by the Spirit of God. Why should we care? Why should I care about being holy? Why should you? What's, what should be your motivation? First, because God is holy. First Peter 15 and 16 says, But he, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. We should reflect Christ in all that we do. Non-believers should be drawn to us through our lives. Does my life and does your life reflect Christ to those around us? Or do our lives show disrespect for his name by complaining, by being controlling, or by being harsh or angry, or maybe by participating in a conversation that's coarse, or laughing at an off-color joke? Do my words, do my attitude reflect Christ? I can look back in my own life, and there are times that I'm really ashamed and embarrassed. Three or four weeks ago, I was talking with someone, I won't name the individual, but out here, and I looked at my watch, and I was supposed to pick up Chris right about then. And I rushed out. I got down here to Armitage on California, and the individual in front of me didn't turn left to go east, and I sat on the horn. Long time. And then the individual turned. And I was so embarrassed because I knew that individual. I called him. Very embarrassed. I said, I'm the jerk <laughs> who blew the horn at you. I was embarrassed. God wants our lives to reflect Christ in all that we say and do. So we should be motivated to be holy because God is holy. But secondly, we should be motivated to be holy because God's stated goal for you and me is that we be holy. Ephesians 1, 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy. You see, your holiness and my holiness, it, it, it wasn't a second thought. It wasn't down the line that God said, I want you to be holy. Before the foundation of the world, He chose you. He chose me. He called us to be His. To make us holy. A third motivation is found in First Peter, first chapter, verse 17, because of the reality of judgment in the future. Verse 17, if you call on him, his Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. There will be a judgment. I think sometimes it's easy for us as believers to say, hey, I'm in. I'm a child of God. I'm part of the family of God. And therefore, we act presumptuously. 
We disobey thinking that because we are in Christ that we'll be forgiven. And we will be forgiven, but there are effects or effects to that. Judging here could be in the here and now, because God does discipline us. It could be that time period in the future when Christ returns and judges us for our deeds. In either case, God takes character development very seriously. And with this judgment in mind, for this now or in the future, we should not be attached to things on this earth. We need to be reminded over and over that we're strangers on earth and that we're, we have a temporary resonance here on earth. So important to remember that our intimacy with God affects our holiness. A fourth reason that we should be holy is found in verses 18 through 21. Because Christ died for our sins. He died to deliver us from sin. Knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ didn't shed his blood for you and for me so that we could live a life of comfort and ease, indulging in a sinful lifestyle. And it's sad to say, but sometimes that's what some of us seem to think. His death should be a motivation for us to not sin. His death empowers us to live without sin, to say no to sin. Christ died to make us holy. Well, fifth reason that we should be holy, one, going back, just to re- renew our, our memory on this, first, God's holy. Two, God called us to be holy. Three, there's a judgment coming. Four, because Christ died for us. And then fifth, the well-being of others around us depends on it. Pastor Robert Murray McShane was a pastor many years ago. But in talking, he said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. My personal holiness. I believe it was Nancy Lee DeMoss that said, the greatest need of our mate, of our children, of our friends, of our fellow workers, is not our acts of service or our friendship. It's not our abilities or our financial provision. Their greatest need is not even your verbal witness of your faith. What they need most in life is to see in you a reflection of Jesus Christ and to see the transforming power of God in our lives. Remember, your life and my life can be used by God to create hunger and thirst for God in the lives of others. And over and over throughout God's Word, it talks about those of us who have children and how our lives affect our children. 
Again, do we love our sin so much that we're unwilling to give it up for the sake of those around us? Do you and I care more about indulging in our fleshly appetites than about the eternal welfare of those around us? Why be holy? Because there are people around us every day we come in contact with, every day, that Christ wants to use us to reach them. I've mentioned my father's son before. My dad could be a tough man. He had eight children. He worked his day job. He came home and worked the farm. Dad had a tough life. His dad died when he was 13 and he was raised by his mom. And his mom didn't care much about spiritual things at all. Dad kind of took that same mindset. I remember him as a kid talking about pastors and how they wanted money. And any time someone in the church fell sexually, Dad mentioned it. When I came to Christ, there was, seemed to be a little interest in Dad's part that soon faded away. My mom came to Christ, and she would go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night at that little Baptist church in Alabama, and then Wednesday night for the prayer meeting. And first, Dad stopped, I believe it was the Sunday night, and then he stopped the Wednesday night, and he kept pushing her until she went to a church closer by. Dad was not open to the gospel. But then Benny McManus returned home. Benny was my mom's first cousin. Benny and his older sons had gone off to the Middle East in the 70s, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, involved in the oil business and did quite well. They returned to South Alabama and built this modern big dairy. And they also built this huge home. Dad wasn't impressed with that. In the midst of it, though, Benny came down with cancer. He lost the big dairy. He lost the home. But in the midst of that, Benny reached out to my dad. He dropped by the house. He invited him to the men's fellowship breakfasts. He did things for dad. It was then that dad began going to church. And somewhere in that time period, my dad trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. It's not that mom hadn't shared Christ with him. It's surely not that I didn't share the gospel with him or my brothers and sisters. But see, God used Benny McManus. As he suffered with cancer. As he struggled to live. God used Benny. God wants to use you, and he wants to use me in the lives of people all around us. 
He wants us to reflect Jesus Christ. So these people who are incidentally touching our lives may see Christ and may come to Christ. We're to live godly lives because God is holy, because He created us to be holy, because our examples may inspire others, cause them to hunger for righteousness. And they'll either choose Christ or reject Christ sometimes because of us. We all struggle with sin. How do we as sinful individuals change? It's hard. I know we all struggle in different ways. We need to remember that it's God working in us to make us holy. He's the one who changes our lives. Oh, we have a responsibility to be obedient, but it's God in us changing us. Leviticus 27, I love, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. First, you see there, we've got responsibility. Consecrate yourselves. Keep my decrees. Follow them. Just, I'm the Lord who makes you holy. First Kings eight fifty-eight. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations that he gave our fathers. Again, we see that call to be obedient. And yet, may he, God, turn our hearts to him to walk in his ways. In Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Again, we see it's God. It's God. It's God. It's his strength. It's his grace. It's his mercy. It's his power working in us as we trust him, as we obey. As I read through these passages and as I studied, I was so aware of my, my tendency to sin, of my tendency to fail the Lord. And yet, we have such hope because it is God in us who changes us. We should be on our knees begging God to turn our hearts to Him so that we walk in His ways. Well, how do we change? Remembering then that it's God in us. First, we need to have a change in our attitude towards sin. It's easy, isn't it, in the midst of life, to let things kind of slide. We begin to think that, eh, this is okay. It's okay. And yet, every time, sin disappoints. Hebrews 11.25 talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin disappoints. It deceives us. It looks good. It looks good. But it destroys. 
I never forget a man who fell sexually talking about this to a group of men, and he said, it's almost like it looked like something so sweet, like a dessert, so sweet and so beautiful. And yet, when I tasted it, it was bitter. It was bitter. You see, sin deceives. And then sin dominates us. Proverbs 5.22, and this is powerful. An evil man is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. Have you thought about that? Our sins are like ropes that catch us and hold us. Sin disappoints, it deceives, it dominates, and it destroys. We can look at lives like King Nebuchadnezzar who literally went crazy, he lost his mind because he refused to acknowledge his pride. Or Samson because he refused to deal with his sexual desires. Maybe it's Ananias and Sapphira who lied and died. There's no better way for us, though, to remember the impact of sin on our lives than through studying God's Word. God's Word is so alive and so active and so powerful. Psalm 119 is all about God's Word. In verse 9 and 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your command. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, we need to know God's word. And it's in studying his word. It's in meditating on his word. It's in, in, in understanding his word that we're able to discern Satan's lies. We're able to guard our hearts. We're able to purify our thoughts. As I think about purifying our thoughts and living pure lives, I want to throw a plug in here. February 9th, almost a month away, Good News Bible Church is hosting a workshop on purity. Most of us are aware of Kinsey reports and how they were inaccurate in science and founded on statistics that were so exaggerated and yet the Kinsey Report still has so much to do with how America looks at sex and views this whole area. And this workshop will be February 9th in the morning, two workshops in the afternoon, one after lunch. I want to encourage you to set aside that date as we think about purity and holiness. So first, as we look at being holy, remember sin destroys. Two, say the word. Three, confess sins. It's hard, isn't it, for us to go and confess sin? Even the temptation of sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says that people who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. We're all familiar with Psalm 32 where King David says that when I refuse to confess my sins... My body wasted away. I groaned all day long. And finally, I confessed all my sins to you. And you forgave me, and all my guilt was gone. Fourth thing we need to do is pray. And I don't want to put a guilt trip on us. We all struggle with prayer. But Jesus Christ left us an example 
Christ being fully God. Mark 1.35 says that rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, that he departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. I could go on and on with verses, but if we're to change, we need to have a right attitude about sin. We need to study God's word, confess our sins, and pray. That's a good starting point. But I want to remind us here, we need more. That's where the living in community comes along. We need to remember that God never intended for you and for me to live the Christian life alone. We need the prayers of others. We need the encouragement of others. We need the accountability of others. Well, what does this living in community mean? <clears throat> we live in a world that, that you know, America really it just it, it pushes this great idea of this rugged individualism. Don't we? Yeah, it's that rugged individual. And yet, that is seeped into the church. We have this idea sometimes that we don't need anybody else. We don't need the church. How many times have you heard it? I've heard it many times. See, the reality is that's a lie of Satan. We need the church. We need the body. We need each other to encourage us to walk with God. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds and not giving up meeting together as some in the habit of doing but encouraging one another. Sunday mornings are great, but we need to be part of a mosaic group. These small groups, and there are nine of them, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, nine groups that you can get involved in. I encourage you to get involved. Opportunity to study God's Word in an informal way where you can ask questions, where you can pray, where you develop fellowship, where you can have accountability. And that's good. But one thing that God is added into this whole thing of living in community is church discipline. And um, Scripture is clear that to stay healthy, we need church discipline. Mark Dever, and for those who have gone through the, the Connections class, I'm going to repeat something you've heard. But Mark Dever says that discipline is, admittedly, not a happy word. It's a little bit like Brussels sprouts. We know that we should like them, but it sure seems like an acquired taste. We don't like discipline, but we need it. It's like corrective surgery. If one has cancer, we want to remove it. And discipline is a method that God has used to do that in the church. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My my dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. And Luke 17.3 says, <clears throat> Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. This is hard to do. This is hard for us to go to one another. I've had brothers come to me. I've gone to brothers. I've had other brothers and sisters come to me and say, hey, so-and-so is doing this. <clears throat> and I say, you go to him. And they say, oh, no. 
But see, God calls us to do that. Membership in the church should reflect Christ. In some sense, again, we're not, we're not, we're far from perfect. This thing that we call discipline is so important. One man who refused direction from the elders said it's all about love. Not discipline, but that we should be about love. And yet Hebrews 12, 6 through 11 talks about the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We could go on and on. Church discipline Discipline in general has many benefits. One is the person disciplined is restored. Two, it's good for other believers to see. First Timothy 5.20 talks about the fact that, that if a person persists in sin, to bring it before the church, and says, so that the rest may stand in fear. So the rest may stand in fear. And third, it's, it's, good, it's good for the health of the church. It produces holiness. And fourth, church discipline is good because it's good for the corporate witness. Matthew 5, 16 talks about letting our light shine before others. Again, it's clear that the church should be different from the world. I struggle with missing the mark all too often. And now you do Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, he talks about the sum, and I'll, I'll end up here, the sum of, of, of holiness being a million little things. It's the avoidance of little evils and little bad habits. It's setting aside the little bits of worldliness and the little acts of compromise. It's the putting to death of the little inconsistencies and the little indiscretions and the attention to the little duties. And he goes on, and he talks about... And he asks the question, he says, are you trustworthy? Are you kind? Are you patient? Are you joyful? Do you love? Boy, it's hard. These qualities worked out in all the little things in life determine whether we are blight or blessing to those around us. Remember my dad's friend, Benny McManus. He wasn't a blight. He was a blessing. God wants you and me to be that blessing. Our world is so caught up in superficial beauty. And yet true beauty comes in Christ. That's what God wants us to look like. Christ. The best-looking Christian is the one who is growing by the Spirit of God into the likeness of Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, oh Lord, as we start this new year,
We're so aware of our shortcomings. Father, we're so aware that we missed the mark. And yet, Father, deep down within us, God, we desire for your spirit to lead us and guide us. Father, we're reminded of that First Kings passage where it says that may you turn our hearts to you to walk in all your ways. Oh, Father, may our hearts be yours and may you change us to be more Christ-like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We could, the prayer councils would come up. Uh,